0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of your, our hair and our eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct to consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Jessica Wright, a Mayo Clinic pharmacogenetics pharmacy specialist. Thank you for joining us today, Jessica. Thanks for having me, Denise. How do you see genomics, specifically pharmacogenomics, impacting primary care providers?
1: I noticed that if a patient has pharmacogenomic results in the electronic health record, I think that primary care providers can really use this information along with any of their other clinical information that they use when choosing a medication regimen. So really what I like to think of is that genomics can be an additional tool in the toolbox for providers, but not the sole tool to use when treating their patients. So it doesn't really replace Clinical judgment, but it is an additional piece to the puzzle that they can use to help their patients. So, there's a couple of things that I like to think about in primary care. There's a number of medications in the primary care setting with guidelines for clinical action based on pharmacogenomic results. So, we have medications like allopurinol, proton pump inhibitors, certain antidepressants, tramadol, codeine, and NSAIDs. So, If a patient has pharmacogenomic testing already completed, and one of these medications could be a possible choice of therapy to treat their condition, I think that the test results can be used in the initial dosing and aiding in the selection of these medications. In my experience, I think some patients are coming to primary care providers with pharmacogenomic testing already completed, whether it may be from a clinical laboratory or a direct-to-consumer company even but for the patients who don't have pharmacogenomics testing yet, I'd like to introduce a concept, so stick with me here. So pharmacogenomics is like a drug interaction. So instead of having an interaction between two drugs, it's really an interaction between a drug and the patient's genes. Therefore, having pharmacogenomic results is kind of like knowing a patient's baseline drug interactions before they even start on any medications. But One could make the case that if we are routinely checking drug interactions for patients, well, it might be reasonable to preemptively utilize pharmacogenomics testing before a patient starts a medication. So that way we would know about any interactions before they're prescribed that drug in the future. But one of the challenges is getting third-party payers to realize the value and return on investment of that initial cost of testing You know, the benefit may be years down the road, and if the patient needs a medication with pharmacogenomic implications, you know, especially if they have an extreme phenotype like a poor metabolizer or an ultra-rapid metabolizer, you know, many patients are not going to be aware that they have those phenotypes, and that can be a really useful situation if they have the pharmacogenomic testing ahead of time. And I think the primary
0: care setting might be a venue for having this discussion. Wow, that's a lot of information. And I'm sure that as a primary care doctor like I am, it's like, how do I even think about getting my arms around this? I'm an old dog. I've been in practice now for 28 years and I have to tell you, pharmacology in my second year of med school, this wasn't talked about at all. We talked about how we metabolize drugs and how drugs act in the body. So for the average person in primary care, How do we get started? What if you're not at the Mayo Clinic and you don't have a pharmacogenetic specialist who's a pharmacist like yourself to go to? Who do we turn to to get information about our patients and about potential pharmacogenetic interactions that may be important for our patients?
1: Well, regardless of whether you're at the Mayo Clinic or not, one of the really nice resources is PharmGKB.org. So this website contains some annotations and links to several guidelines, including the CPIC guideline. So you might really ask yourself, well, what is CPIC? That stands for Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. And you can search particular medications or you can browse those clinical guidelines to learn more about which medications are associated with which genes. And then they also tell you about the level of evidence to support such an interaction. So if a health care provider were to, let's say, look at a particular gene on a report and say, okay, this patient is a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer and want to know, well, which medications could impact that? They could just type in CYP2D6 into farmgkb.org's search box. And uh, if they click on clinical annotations, then they can look at which medications might be associated with that CYP2D6 gene. And so for any gene that appears on a report, that's a a particularly very good strategy for that provider to look at. Now, a lot of the labs will actually have a phone number for the providers to call so that if they wanna get expert advice from let's say the lab director or maybe some labs even have their own pharmacists or genetic counselors, then they can get that advice from those labs. And that's what I've been experiencing in terms of, you know, in my own practice, if I have a a question and I get stuck on a particular gene, that's what I might do to further ask the lab about what that gene
0: really means. You mentioned CYP2D6, and I've heard of that before because I too have an interest in pharmacogenomics, but I understand there's a lot of different genes. So, as a primary care doc, do I have to worry about hundreds of genes, or are there just a few genes that are really important for most of the drugs that I might prescribe for my patients?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, because it does seem to be overwhelming if you really think about all the different genes that could be tested on a panel. But the genes with the most amount of evidence tend to be the the genes that start with CYP, or the CYP genes. So those are the genes that tend to be in most of the guidelines already. And the guidelines are the CPIC guidelines that I've been talking about earlier.
0: Great. I see a lot of patients in my practice, as I know most of my colleagues do. And do we have to worry about every drug a patient's on? Or would you say that there are fewer drugs that we have to worry on? I guess I think about, does every patient have to come in with pharmacogenomics? or can I be a little selective? And are there specific drug classes maybe that it might be most important to think about as I'm seeing my patients when I'm selecting medications to use and treating a variety of different conditions?
1: One of the things that you can keep in mind is that there's a bit more evidence for certain medication classes or even just certain medications. The list is actually pretty simple. All you have to do is, again, go to farmgkb.org. And if you click on the guidelines, you can actually see which guidelines are available for these particular medications. They'll list actually all the different medications that you might see in your practice that would have that highest level of evidence. For example, some of these medications might be NSAIDs or PPIs or antidepressants. Those are just a handful of medications that have fairly good evidence for use of pharmacogenomics test results to guide clinical
0: care. You bring up a really good point because I understand that often antidepressants in particular, pharmacogenomics can be really important when picking a drug. And also when you've had a patient or I've had a patient where I can't seem to get good response from my patient or pharmacogenomics has been really helpful in changing the drug therapy to find the drug that works best for my patient. And looking at their pharmacogenomic profile has been helpful to select the drug that may be most successful for them. You mentioned NSAIDs. Are there other pain medicines where it can be really helpful to have pharmacogenomic data?
1: Yeah, so ahead of time, if you know a patient's CYP2D6 metabolizer phenotype, it can be particularly helpful for tramadol and codeine. So for example, if you have a patient who's a CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizer, which is relatively rare, but it can happen, and if the patient has that phenotype and they're prescribed codeine or tramadol, really we want to be avoiding those medications actually because they could have potentially quite serious respiratory depression, which can be fatal. So in that case, you'd want to probably prescribe a different medication. Now on the flip side, if the patient is a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer, then we might run the risk with codeine and tramadol as well of not having really great efficacy with those drugs. And I've talked to patients who have taken those medications and were CYP2D6 poor metabolizers. And they said that taking the medications was similar to taking M&Ms.
0: It just really didn't help them very much. So does that mean my patient who tells me tramadol doesn't work isn't just trying for a stronger narcotic and pain-seeking, but in fact may have a metabolic problem so that tramadol really doesn't work for them as an effective analgesic?
1: That could be quite true, actually. So these patients may be at a higher risk for those medications not working. Now, let's say the patient is an intermediate metabolizer of CYP2D6. Now, if that patient is also on a CYP2D6 inhibitor, you have two different things that would be lowering their CYP2D6 value or level. So you have medications and then you also have their baseline genetics that can be decreasing their CYP2D6 activity. And therefore, that's another thing to consider too. So not just their genetic interactions, but also their drug-drug interactions that might play a role in how the tramadol is working for them or not working for them.
0: It sounds like you can get pretty complicated between not only the genetic makeup and then also the other drugs where you d- run into drug interactions with metabolism, the things that many of us learned about in medical school in our pharmacology classes, so I can see where having the access to a pharmacologist or pharmacogeneticist who can really help to distill the differences about what are the components of the pharmacogenetics and also where we might get into trouble with some of the drug interactions can be very helpful in distilling how we can best help our patients in selecting and optimizing the drug treatment for our patients.
1: Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that.
0: So you mentioned early on when you were talking about the role of pharmacogenomics in helping our patients, especially with medications, cost. So you mentioned early on that the cost could potentially be prohibitive for patients. What's happened? Because I know years ago, the cost was on the order of thousands of dollars for genomic testing. Is it now affordable for patients to get pharmacogenomic testing to help us as their providers select optimal drug therapy for them?
1: Yeah, I think cost is really an issue that we need to consider, and it really has come down quite a bit. It's no longer in the thousands for most tests. I mean, there's many tests now that are just a couple of hundred dollars for the tests. And, and even if a patient might want, let's say, a point of care single gene testing those can be actually quite inexpensive, even below $100 that I've heard in some cases. But for the most part, a couple hundred dollars has been what I have learned in my experience that patients have paid for these types of tests. Now, the costs can vary and patients may be willing to pay out of pocket for some of these. And that's not always the case. But as far as insurance companies, we have seen that a few more insurance companies have been paying for pharmacogenomics testing or at least have had that in their coverage description. So the interesting thing is that for some of these insurance companies, they pay for particular indications like antidepressants or they might cover clopidogrel testing, so testing 2C19. They might have very specific cases and might not cover all cases of pharmacogenomics testing and it might depend upon the diagnosis code that's submitted with that particular claim.
0: You mentioned both CPIC and also the PharmGKB as being great resources for people who don't have access to local experts. Are there any other resources that you might recommend for physicians or providers to look at or to go to for information about pharmacogenomics?
1: One thing I would have to say is that we have a really great certificate program at Mayo Clinic. It's a 16-hour online course, so that's available to external and internal providers, as well as pharmacists. So if a provider really wants to learn more and just have that more well-rounded experience and knowledge about pharmacogenomics, that's an option. When getting CME credit and things like that, that's uh, that's a nice option to really gain a lot of credit, but also to have that type of resource there. Uh, and then you'll get familiar, I think, with a lot of the faculty too from Mayo Clinic in terms of who's talking, what kind of resources that they suggest. And it also walks you through in one of the videos there about how to use Farm GK, Farm GKB. So there's a nice tour of that website and how to actually apply some of the pharmacogenomics concepts in clinical practice.
0: Right, Jessica, you mentioned the term CYP2D6, and I know CYP means cytochrome, but there's a lot of jargon when we start to think about pharmacogenomics. Are there some key terms that for the person who's unfamiliar with this field, are there some key terms that you might recommend that people might go ahead and do the Google search on? to just start to gain some familiarity with ideas or concepts in the field of pharmacogenomics that might help them to start to feel like they can ask some questions even to their pharmacists. Because I think sometimes primary care docs feeling very uninformed and intimidated may feel like they can't formulate a question to really ask about what they should be doing for their patients.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really good question because it's always good to know exactly where to start. One of the things that confuses a lot of people when they're starting to learn about pharmacogenomics is the word extensive. It's used a lot in reference to extensive metabolizer. And extensive metabolizer just really means normal metabolizer. But a lot of people falsely have thought that it meant increased function, but it's really just normal function. And another thing that's good to know is about the star 1 star 1 genotype. So, star 1 is typically what's used to designate a normal metabolizer. But in certain cases, the star 1 is actually just telling us that we don't really know if the patient is 100% a, a normal metabolizer. It could be that the patient has a rare allele that was not captured in the test. So just knowing that some tests might say normal metabolizer, it just means that no variant or allele was detected. And therefore, the lab had assigned that default allele of the star one star one, calling the patient normal metabolizer. So that's another concept to know about. It's good to know the difference between a genotype and a phenotype. And also, there's particular nomenclature, the star allele, like I mentioned the star one, or there's a variety of other star alleles. Different numbers are assigned to those alleles. And that is how the labs can interpret that particular genotype. It's also good to know about what is an RSID. So RSIDs are numbers that are used to actually describe that genetic variant. And so this helps all the literature, I think, keep up to date and standardize with each other so that they're referring to exactly the same particular gene and genetic variant. So one thing I, I advise providers to do is that if they're looking at, let's say particular literature within pharmacogenomics and they, they say, okay, this is my gene, it's gene X. And I wanna know, what does this really mean on this lab report? And in PharmGKB, they're looking up this particular RSID or gene. You wanna make sure that that matches, that the RSID or that RS number that's listed and GKB matches the exact RS number that that lab had tested or combination of those. So really, that's how you can compare apples to apples. So that's another area where I'd say providers can actually make sure that they're comparing that correctly. As far as just the nomenclature, getting familiar with things like diplotype, haplotype are also good ideas.
0: Let me step back and even take a broader look and say, You mentioned genotype and phenotype. Aren't those the same thing? So as a clinician, if I know what the genes are, isn't that what the phenotype is? How is that different and does that matter to me? So a genotype is really what the lab is going to come up with
1: when they test the particular gene. And that genotype is going to typically be in the form of a star allele, although sometimes they may report it out in different nomenclature like that RSID, and then they might give the actual nucleotides that were tested. Now, phenotype is going to be what the actual expression is going to be. So, for example, if we have a 2D6 star 1 star 4, that is going to be the genotype for that particular gene. Now, the star 1 star 4, the phenotype for that would probably be an intermediate metabolizer. So, an intermediate metabolizer is going to be that phenotype And that's going to be what we expect the patient's enzyme activity to be. Intermediate means between poor and normal. So it's not zero, but it's not normal either at the same time. So it's reduced function.
0: So what you're telling me is the genotype is really what a person has when they test the genes, but the phenotype is really the expression of the gene or what the gene action is. Is that right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And the phenotype is going to be that expected phenotype that's reported. However, this is not always the case. You know, you may have a patient who is on a CYP2D6 inhibitor. And if that patient has an intermediate metabolizer phenotype, you know, that might not be actually what their true phenotype is once you had a CYP2D6 inhibitor in the picture. They might be a little bit more like a poor metabolizer.
0: So once the drug interaction then is really related to the other medication they're on interfering with the phenotype from their gene. Exactly. Okay. Now that makes sense to me. So your genes are your genes. They're what you're inherited. But what your genes do, what they express is what can be impacted by other things. Now, is it only other drugs that can affect the phenotype? There's probably more
1: than just other medications. You know, I think there's an entire field devoted to this. And so, looking at epigenetics, this can be an area where the methylation of the genes can also affect the phenotype. And as far as that goes, you know, we won't be able to test that in typical pharmacogenomic tests right now because that just looks at the sequence of the DNA. But epigenetics will take into account really how the methylation may turn on or turn off certain genes or affect those. And so that might also
0: affect the phenotype. So you're telling me epigenetics is for another day.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, that's a whole nother field and a whole nother talk.
0: So not that I'm intriguing or piquing the audience to stay tuned for epigenetics in the future, but perhaps I am. So our topic today is really about pharmacogenomics. Now, I've got a question because Jessica, this is your job day in, day out, is to talk about pharmacogenomics and really provide input and assistance and resources to your colleagues who are clinicians like myself. So can you provide an example where you actually were involved with a case where the pharmacogenomic information and the input you were able to provide to a clinician or regarding a patient impacted patient outcomes and how that integration of the pharmacogenomics was really helpful in providing the optimal care for that patient?
1: Yeah, thank you. This is a really good question because it's one of the, I'd say, the most proudest aspects of what I do is being able to help the patients. And I do remember there was a patient with major depressive disorder who was prescribed escitalopram. And she was titrated to the 20 milligram daily dose for several weeks, but really she didn't have much improvement in her symptoms. And she did have an adequate trial period of that medication. So then the provider added bupropion and I wasn't involved at that point, but she did have another adequate trial of the bupropion with the acetylopram. And she still wasn't really experiencing much benefit from her regimen. And then As part of a pharmacogenomics research study that analyzed her genes, she also received a pharmacist consult. So this is where her test results had revealed that she's a CYP2C19 ultra-rapid metabolizer. And that just means that her escitalopram levels were likely lower than expected because escitalopram is metabolized by CYP2C19. So this actually explained in part her inability to achieve remission. There may be a variety of other factors, but it's quite likely that this could be potentially the culprit. As a pharmacist, I had recommended discontinuing the escitalopram. And now two months later, after that, I checked the chart to see what happened to the patient. And the provider had optimized the bupropion dose. And then the patient was actually in full remission from the major depressive disorder. And she ended up actually tolerating the bupropion monotherapy pretty well. Now, in the future for this patient. You know, if she's prescribed a medication that has CYP2C19 implications, it doesn't stop there with just escitalopram. Medications like pantoprazole or voriconazole, those medications have guidelines for what to do if the patient's a CYP2C19 ultra rapid metabolizer. And those are actually actionable. Those actually could now influence the provider's choice of dosing or therapy for those two medications. And specifically with pantoprazole, the CPIC guidelines do state that the starting dose can be doubled in patients who are ultra-rapid metabolizers, just because they do have that decreased risk of actually having the the medication fail if their medication dose is is increased, just because they are going to metabolize it faster. So that's a case where I was really impressed to see that the patient
0: had done much better just on that bupropion
1: monotherapy.
0: So that's an important example, I think, and really highlights how that information really helped to optimize the care of patients. I can imagine that keeping a drug going that's really not effective can result in more adverse effects. And actually, patient can be actually quite discouraged. I know my own practice, when you keep somebody on a medication for four or six weeks and they're not getting better, they really get discouraged. And what an outstanding example of how really pharmacogenomics in a common condition. We know that depression occurs in about 10% of primary care patients. So this isn't an unusual case of what a patient might present in my office with or in any primary care office where using that pharmacogenomic information can be very valuable. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is that the CYP2C19 isn't only just the escitalopram. You mentioned the pentoprazole and gosh, who hasn't prescribed a PPI recently? The implication as an ultra rapid metabolizer, do they get sick from the drug or do they just not respond if you give them standard dose PPI? What happens?
1: So for standard dosing of PPIs, that medication does get metabolized a lot faster and it gets cleared. So it's an active medication. And then what happens is that medication is that decreased levels than the general population. So we would expect that those patients are really not going to derive that full benefit from the pantoprazole. So decreased efficacy is really the concern there.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jessica, we've just about run out of time for today. And I want to thank you very much for coming today to talk with us about pharmacogenomics and the importance of it in primary care. Are there any closing remarks you would like to leave us with in terms of what is the importance of pharmacogenomics in taking care of patients who come to our office in primary care? If you could say, what are a couple of golden nuggets or clinical pearls that we should keep in mind? Things that I
1: want to tell my patients when I'm consulted and things that I would suggest that primary care providers also tell their patients is, you know, make sure to... Not stop your medications just because of pharmacogenomics. Consult with your primary care provider, but also if you have other providers that you are working with, such as specialists, take your pharmacogenomic results to them and show them. So that if you're prescribed a medication such as azathioprine or even you know many other medications that they might have a drug gene interaction, and and that can be really helpful to to try to prevent some of those severe adverse effects or even lack of efficacy with certain medications. So I think it's really important to make sure that all members of the healthcare team are informed about the pharmacogenomics results.
0: Well, once again, we've been talking about pharmacogenomics with Dr. Jessica Wright. Thank you for your time, Jessica. I hope you have enjoyed our Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. Please subscribe and see your genes really do matter. Thank you all very much.